Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Oh, that's an incredible track off of John Craigie's new album. That one is called Don't Ask, and this is something I've wanted to say for a long time. We've got him on the show today. I've been wanting to have this guy on the show uh, since I started the show, and I first caught his music back in 2010. We talk about that in this interview, and we talk about his life as a DIY musician, kind of booking everything for himself and living nomadically in his van at the beginning of his career, and what that was like, what he learned from that experience, and why the USA specifically is set up in many ways for that type of nomadic lifestyle. We talk about pursuing your art, whatever that is, this idea of thinking you are good enough <laughs> to be doing it without necessarily expecting everyone else to think the same thing. Of course, we get into songwriting and the intersection of travel and music. We talk about the importance of humor. And if you've ever seen John play live or have listened to one of his live albums, you know he's a master storyteller. So I had to ask him, what makes a good story? Always good to up your storytelling game. So we get some advice there and so much more. You know, John's been on tour with the likes of Jack Johnson and the Avett Brothers, amongst others. And I should mention that his newest album is called Asterisk the Universe. So all the music you hear in today's show is from that album. And Glide Magazine said Asterisk the Universe happens to be one of his best records yet. And The Stranger described John as the love child of John Prine and Mitch Hedberg with a vagabond troubadour edge. So let's get into it. Thanks for hanging out here with me today. Buckle up, strap in, grab your favorite beverage, relax, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. 
Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Welcome, my friend. How are you doing wherever you are? Hope all is well with you. We've got a wonderful show, as you heard at the top. John Craigie is here And man, I was so excited to talk to this guy. It's always awesome to talk to musicians because travel is such a part of their lives and you really can't pull travel out from the art. It's just kind of all blended together. When you're a musician, you tour, you live on the road a lot. And John certainly did that and has done that for many, many years. So it was such a joy to be able to sit down with him and get his perspectives on nomadic life. Of course, we talk about pursuing your art and and your purpose and your calling, whatever you want to call it. And we get into just an array of topics around travel and life. That's what we do here at the podcast, as you know. So I know you're going to very much enjoy this conversation and stick around afterward. I'm going to play you my favorite Craigie song right now. It's so appropriate for this show. The song's called Nomads, and I want you to hear it. So stick around for that. Now, here's my interview with John Craigie, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Just to keep on suffering on, yeah, this part of woe. This part island and this part cold. This part violence, you give me your hand. I do my best not to let it go. Oh, this part of love, this part demon. All right, I'm not even going to try to play it cool today at all because I'm with one of my songwriting heroes on the line, Mr. John Craigie. You can check out his music at johncraigiemusic.com. That's J-O-H-N-C-R-A-I-G-I-E music.com. Highly recommend all of his music, but if you want a place to start, check out his most recent album, Asterisk the Universe, and his last live album opening for Steinbeck so you can get a feel of uh, why I dug him immediately as soon as I saw him live back in the day. So anyway, John, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And just so you know, I uh, I guess I'm sort of the self-appointed head of the John Craigie Scandinavian street team over here. I'm trying to do my part for you, man. <laughs> yeah, I got to get a gig. <laughs> we got to get you some work. Spread the good word. Yeah. Have you been over here before? or No, not that far up. Uh, you know, I've been to Europe a bunch but just mostly the UK, and I just started doing the northern, western, like uh, Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, and then a little bit below that. But I'd like to get up to that your your areas. I think that's really well received. I think I hear there are a lot of great folk fans up there. So yeah, I have uh, like you, and there's some other artists. I'm thinking, should I just start my own festival here and just like bring the people that I want? That's not a very good business move, I guess. But <laughs> What is the difference you've noticed touring in Europe versus the U.S. in terms of like the crowd or the energy or anything like that? On the sort of more obvious sense, uh, I'm just getting started there. So you have a fan base that doesn't know me from like years of touring. Everyone knows me from either Spotify or some sort of word of mouth. So it's pretty cool that there's um, maybe a bit more mystique to my to my stuff. And also, I think just coming from a different place. I have noticed that I have to adjust my um, 
my bits, if you will, my stories, just because sometimes there's certain references that uh, I think are hilarious, but, you know, are not relevant either, you know. I think when an American is in the UK, we forget that it's a foreign country. We think like that they're like our dad and mom, you know, which they kind of are. And so we just sort of talk like normal as if they have Walmarts and things like that. And I think when we're in mainland Europe, we're a little more aware that we're somewhere different. I think I'm always just so grateful and appreciative of the amount of English that's out there because uh, that's a huge part of my show. I, you know, I always joke that if they don't speak English, they better be a big fan of the G chord because that's really like all that I have going for me otherwise, you know. But I love, I do love it. And uh, yeah, I, this COVID thing, of course, as bad as it is on so many levels, you know, that's one of them for sure where it's like, it interrupted my ability to go to Europe. And I don't, I think they got me booked for like fall of 2022 or something crazy is my next one. So, and you know how it is. I mean, it's just something, I don't know when we're all going to be go, able to go out there a little, I haven't even gone to my own East coast yet. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you got a show coming up in a couple of weeks, a big show at Red Rocks at the time of this recording. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's Absolutely. That's awesome. I, I feel you on adjusting the bits. I mean, I'm not putting on a show, but when I have conversations with my Norwegian friends, I I have to sort of stymie the pop culture references and certain things. I can't totally make the same jokes, which is odd. So I get around some of my expat American friends and we just we just go off. It's like we pack it in. <laughs> we're, we're together for two hours and we just pack in as many references or ridiculous American things as we can, uh, just, just to like get it out of our systems or something. I don't know. <laughs> For sure. That's real, man. You know, <laughs> I joke about this a little bit, but I think when you're in your own country, you know, you feel like I'm a citizen of the world, you know, like I could travel anywhere. It doesn't matter. But when you do travel, you do start to, you know, have some sort of sense of homesickness only in, in the sense of relatability. You know, it is sort of your, your family, you know, your, uh, your crew for for lack of a better word that you can sort of all relate to and have those sort of those um similar like uh jokes and especially when you know being during the trump years you know traveling abroad it's you know that was just a terrible time for our country and and just you know everyone knew that but it was like i don't know it was just something about how i just would start to really miss my my people and what they were going through and you know, it's just, it's a really interesting fact about traveling that people sometimes gloss over. Yeah. Yeah. It's been tough living here and just thinking about what was going on. And yeah, it just gives you a different perspective on your home country. I think growing up in the States or wherever you grow up, you just kind of are used to what you're used to. And it's hard to stop seeing that until you really get out of it for a period of time, I feel. I caught you first at the uh, Laughing Goat in Boulder. Do you remember? Oh, old school. Yeah. It, it must have been, I don't know, would it have been 09 or something? So the CD I bought was Montana Tale. Yeah, that would have been around 2010 probably. Maybe 09. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've said in, I think, your live album, you, you kind of have this bit where you talk about it's, you know, there's two types of people that a Craigie show. And I was the one that was a quote unquote dragged to using your words but uh, i was a friend of mine who saw you at burning man and she was like to my girlfriend at the time and me she's like you got to come see this guy and we're like okay cool and we're up for seeing some music you know we're always up for that yeah and it was one of those deals where i was just like 
instant fan. I'm like, oh, this this guy's awesome. And it, it looked like you were maybe living nomadically, but I don't know. Like when you started touring, if you're thinking back to then, what was the lifestyle like for you? Was it a DIY type of music touring nomadic existence or how did that look for you? Yeah. I mean, if you saw me in 2010, then that's what was happening. I had been doing the semi-nomadic touring for a while. And then right around 2010, when Montana Tale came out, and it started to get some some good reactions, some buzz to it. I thought, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I really got to do this. And I just felt that where I was living in Northern California was just holding me back a bit. So, yeah, I just went for it. Got my astro. I had an astro van, but just, you know, got the bed built out and just booked the kind of touring where it was sort of nonstop, you know. So it wasn't that I was like, yes, I was living out of my van, but I was being supported by everyone's couch and everyone's you know guest room and everything like that and so i had kind of built up that following of of sorts yeah so that's what i I did that for about three or four years before i settled here in portland what did that time in life mean to you what does it mean to you now i think that a, a person who is you know either jobless or you know has a job like like that like artist or i think that that's the most free that one can be in this current life you know i mean i had no i had no family you know no children no partner my job was my own job you know it was my i was a musician i had no management or label or anything like that and uh i was booking my own show so it was i've never been that free it was as free as you can get in our western world and so not to say that that changed too much when I settled down, but it's a little, it was a little different once you start paying your, I just, my bills were so low. I had, I had no bills essentially other than I guess cell phone and um, whatever the car payments were. Did that decision to live in that way nomadically kind of coincide with, with a decision to sort of go all in on music? Was there a point in your life when you're like, I'm all in on this or did that just gradually happen over time? It was a decision, but I was maybe 90% there. But it was scary, and I wasn't making the kind of money where I could do that. I had to um, substitute teach or landscape or whatever when I was back in California. But I realized that the the reason I had to do that was to afford my settled life, you know, to pay my rent, to pay for myself when I wasn't earning money. Through. I, was earning, I was earning some money through music. I learned when I was on the road, I didn't need to do another job, you know, I even had it down to where if I could make a hundred bucks a night, that was really good. I could probably get up, get by on a fifty bucks a night, but I was playing every night I could. Some weeks, seven days if I could. Sometimes two day gigs in a, in a day. If there was, I remember like I had known the hustle to where I knew places that were like would do the afternoon coffee shop gig that would give you fifty, you know, plus tip jar, plus CD sales, plus meal. Do that. Sometimes I would get the the restaurant gig from like six to eight then wander over to the bar gig that was nine to midnight or something. So once I went all in, I was making more money for sure. And and obviously everything was focused on that. So everything just became more efficient as far as all the, all the aspects. It's weird. Like if you were to draw a graph, it's almost in, in some ways, the less you have, the more freedom you have. I mean, of course, that's coming from a privileged standpoint, right? Like, I, you know, I have a, a roof over my head and all that. I mean, all that is given. But yeah, the, I spent about 10 years living nomadically and, and it was uh, 
you know, just nice to know, all right, like all the stuff I have is just right here. And that's really all I need, you know? <laughs> and the United States is very, is very built for that. You know what I mean? I remember during that time I went to Mexico uh, to try to do a similar thing. And I love Mexico and it was so much fun, but they didn't have the infrastructure. You know, they didn't have like 50 gigs in every city. They didn't have like all of the aspects, you know, they didn't have like Walmart parking lots to sleep in and things like that. Not to say that, that they were inhospitable and not to say that I couldn't have made it down there, but I am lucky that I was born American and, and chose this particular job, which this country has a whole sort of map of how to do that. You know what I mean? In Europe, I also found too that I'm lucky that I've been able to sign on with some European booking agencies because it would be a bit harder to do it in the way that I was doing it back then, which was, I mean, sometimes I would roll into a town and just park downtown and walk from bar to bar and just say, can I play? <laughs> can I play? You know, until somebody said, sure. Even if it was paying nothing, you put that tip jar out and CDs out, you're going to make some money, you know. If nothing else, like you're going to get fed, you're going to get a place to stay. So that was something that, you know, I was, yeah, very privileged. And of course, people taking care of me and houses and couches and the random just, you know, whatever, the tip, gift. It was just, I was very lucky. You know? It's kind of like throwing yourself at the mercy of the universe in a yes, way, yes. right? You're just like, here I am. Uh, somehow this is going to work out. I don't know, maybe having less in that way puts the focus on the more important things like the relationships or the you know, the spontaneous sort of friendships you make along the way that end up turning into, I imagine, you know, you've met some people that you've just passed through and maybe spent a couple nights with, and you're probably still in touch with some of those people. Of course. Yeah. You know, I think for lack of a, it's a cheesier, it's a cheesy metaphor, but it's true about sort of the mama bird pushing the baby bird out to fly. You know, I think that, and forgive me, cause I do not like flying metaphors, but <laughs> it is very good in the sense that I think as a musician, you can sit in that nest and in the very, very rare chances, you can have the situation where somebody comes along and takes you away, you know, on their cloud or something. Or, or if you're just like insanely talented, but 99% of the time you have to take that leap and just trust that if you work hard enough and that you have some good talents and good uh, attributes, you're going to do okay, you know. And I think that was something that it took me a while to realize that. I always had you know, one foot in the nest, if you will. It also seemed to me, even at that time, and that was, I guess, pretty early in your touring days from what you're, what you're saying, I just got the sense like, this guy is clearly working on his craft and like taking it seriously. And there's an element of that too. And the DIY aspect is a whole other, because you have to figure this all out. I mean, yes, there's a built-in infrastructure, but there's still a lot of putting yourself out there, right? Like walking down the street and just talking to random bar owners and things is not, it's not an easy thing to do. Like what did the, the DIY aspect of that whole experience teach you just about yourself? Yeah. I mean, and that's also not to sound like an old curmudgeon, but when I was starting in the mid two thousands, like, yeah, even though I think that the landscape of America was ready for what I was doing, you didn't have all the blogs, you didn't have the Instagrams, a lot of it I was making up on my own, really, you know. I remember when I first started, that's when you had to, like, they wanted you to mail a physical CD to each coffee shop, you know, and each bar. I mean, it was a nightmare to be out there on the road trying to assemble these uh, press kits, they called them, you know, with your bio. And, and I'm sure it was a nightmare for these coffee shops to get 
thousands of these in the mail. So, but I did learn that, um, one, you can't take things too personal. You know, that was something I learned early on. I would watch my contemporaries, my associates, my friends in this biz. It can be harsh. You know, one thing, uh, these venues owners can be total dicks to you. You know, they can be totally mean. They can also be really nice. Uh, audience members can be mean. Random, you know, uh, gas station clerk. Everyone can be mean. It's a mean world out there. You can't take it personally. You got to keep going. And it's this weird thing to the uh, relationship with your ego has to be very sane and realistic. You have to find this balance of believing in yourself enough to where you think you're good because otherwise, why are you doing this? You have to think you're very special and important and you have something to say. Yet, you also have to realize that no one else might think that and that's okay. You know, it's subjective. And so I think the problem you have with some people is that they don't have enough confidence. They go, ah, I suck. Or they get that, they puff up too much. They walk into a room and no one listens. And then they're like, how could this be? You know, I learned to find that balance of, yes, I think, I think I'm all right. I think I'm doing a good thing. These people might not agree and that's okay. I just got to find the people who like this kind of thing. And so that's what you start to realize is you start to find your, the people that you're Arlo Guthrie, Todd Snyder, Greg Brown, Loudon Wainwright, John Prine. You find these people that you think that obviously that you are your inspirations. And then you try to find the rooms that they played. Where did they go? Because that's where your, that's where your fan base is. Yeah. Those are some of the lessons I learned for sure. Yeah. That's sort of a practical thing too. Like for any artist listening, you're almost reverse engineering it. You're like, all right, who are the people you club to? Where did they put their art? Where did they put their photography? Where did they play shows? Okay. Start there. It might be a good starting place for people. Yeah. We all follow in these footsteps of our artistic ancestors. I think it's important. It's always weird to me when I meet someone who doesn't have that, you know, they just sort of, they play music, but they're very unaware of sort of the the legacy of their genre. And I, I worry for them because I do think that there's some pride in, in sort of thinking like, well, I'm doing this on my own, but we have to look to our, the history, you know, we got to know it. I think. You just mentioned the word legacy is, is part of a, the drive for you creating some kind of legacy in, in some way. I know it's a big word and it depends on how you interpret it, I suppose, but I think there's something natural about that as a human, right? I, th- I think that, yeah, I, I don't know. You're right. Legacy might not be the correct word, but I know what you mean. And yes, for me, I think when I was starting out, because I wasn't very good and I didn't have a lot of people, it's not like the world wasn't begging for the John Grady show to happen. I wanted to serve like in that job. You know, I loved these guys so much, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, all like all the guys I mentioned before, um, these storytellers. I just felt that that was a very noble job and I wanted to be a part of that team, if you will. And I, I thought I, I thought I could add something to it, and so yeah, I, I think that that's important as well. Like I said, knowing your history, I think sometimes people just get into music for the wrong reasons. They just sort of they like how it feels to be on stage. They like when it goes right, it's a very fun job. When it goes wrong, it's really you know soul crushing. <laughs> soul crushing, that not not a light term. <laughs> but when you're at that festival and you're on that stage and the vibe is good, the after party's good, the the adoration is good you know that can be like really nice and i think some people can get really focused on that but i think you got to know your place you got to know your uh your sort of your service and your duty in this sort of larger scheme 
that our, like I said, our artistic ancestors gave to us. And you look at, I think a great example is someone like a Van Gogh or whatever, you know, I talk about Van Gogh a lot. I know it's a cliche, but it's funny how we as a society, we really love stories like that. You know, we love a story about someone who did a bunch of work, they weren't famous, and then they got famous after they died. You know, we love that story. And to me, the most fascinating aspect of the story is not that Van Gogh wasn't famous when he was alive. The exciting part of that story is that he persisted, you know, he continued to paint regardless of it. And I think that's the inspiration we should take from it, is that he was in service to the muse, to the um, to the people who love that stuff. And I think, I think he knew that in some way. And, and so this, uh, this sort of inspiration to create comes from somewhere and we have to sort of respect that calling. I think this episode is brought to you by us bank. Recently I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have taco Friday in Norway, not taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I want to come back to some of that, but since you mentioned story, that's a big part of what you do is tell stories. And uh, that's what I loved about the show immediately was it just felt almost like a throwback in, in the best way possible, right? It's like you got great songs and stories in between, and it was just a, a, a great show. And when you're trying to make decisions on what stories you're going to tell, what are your requirements, right? Like what makes a great story? What makes the cut for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know, I guess, to be, to be honest. I think that 
for me, I, I, it wanted to be relevant. I wanted to sort of be something that people can relate to. I find that the best things are the things that are personal yet universal, you know, which is a hard balance to find. But clearly that's what everyone wants. They want to feel like you're telling the truth, you know, and the best way to tell the truth is to just talk about what's happening to you because that's going to be unique and, and honest. Uh, yet they want to relate to it. And I think that what's nice about being the troubadour, or the traveler is that you ideally have that sort of universal pain, that universal understanding because you're out there doing it. An artist, unless, you know, you're gajillionaire famous, you know, an artist is going to have that understanding of failure and success and the, and love and loss that we all have. And, and you learn that from traveling, you know, and, you know, I always say this, that the purpose of music and stories is not to make you feel better, but to make you feel less alone. And I think that's what a good story does. Not to mention also that universal humor. I think to be able to laugh at these pseudo painful things is something that as humans, we, we, we crave. And I think a lot of times laughter comes from, you know, if you look at the most basic, like a Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal with airplane peanuts or whatever, we laugh because we realize like, I've had that thought too. I'm not alone in thinking that that's weird or whatever. And those are the best jokes as opposed to, which, um, which I think is, is why, yeah, like good humor has to come from shared experience, I think. Is it more rewarding to get the laughter or to get the big clap at the end of a song? <laughs> it depends. You know, I mean, I think the, the laughter is harder to get because the clap is sort of guaranteed. You know what I mean? People clap at the end of a bad song. They're just going to do it. I mean, unless it's a horribly offensive song, they're going to clap. It's just, it's a, it's a natural human reaction. But laughter, you have to earn. People aren't going to fake laugh for you. It just isn't going to happen, you know. I don't have one of those signs, you know, like a TV show. Right. <laughs> I do want to talk about songwriting, but I had another travel question related to your choice to to play music and to travel in that way because it's impossible to take travel out of music because it's such a part of a musician's life, right? I'm just wondering for you, was the travel aspect just sort of a a necessary evil? I guess like, oh, okay, well, I have to, you know, I have to promote my music, so I have to get out there and play. Or was it one of the reasons you got into it? It's like, I, I like the lifestyle of a musician, that idea of it. That's a wonderfully complicated question because I talk about this a lot with my friends, especially right now as we're on the brink of going back into uh, potentially normalcy of some kind as far as a musician's life. But after coming out of a year and a half or so of of not, I when I started... Touring, of course, was a thing that bands did, but I didn't think that I was supposed to tour yet. I, you know, I thought a tour was a thing that you did after the record label, you know, told you here's where the tour is. So my first few tours, I felt like I was cheating a little bit, you know, or I was sort of, I wasn't supposed to be doing this. I realized that there was a whole world of people out there like me doing that. But I always wanted to travel and uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, very nice you know, parents, but very sort of strict and square. And we didn't travel. It was not a thing we did that much. And um, maybe, you know, one one trip a, a year to a, San Diego or something, you know, very nice. But I remember my bedroom as a child had National Geographic pictures all over the walls. And 
it was always something I wanted to do. And so when I realized that I had a job that could somewhat pay for that, uh, it was in the beginning, it was almost more that than the thing I, I would sort of say it was kind of a glorified road trip in the beginning because nobody asked me to do it. You know, none of these venues were like selling tickets. No one was waiting in line. I was on a road trip and promoting this new thing I was doing. So it was never evil or necessary, but I think for some people, yes, it is. I think there are some introverts out there who feel like I got to travel if I'm going to get out there. And I think it's a very complicated question because I don't know the answer. You know, I think what happens is that musicians will write songs and they'll want to have a career in it. And then they'll see the ocean of stuff out there and they throw their little EP in there and it doesn't make as big of a splash as they want. And the default is to, okay, I got to take this on the road. I don't know if that's true. I don't know any other way. Cause that's sort of what was for me. But when I, when I'd sort of give advice to these younger people who are starting out, it's complicated because of course they see me, they say, Oh, that's what I want to do. And of course I'll support that because it served me well. I have other friends though, where it doesn't, it, it becomes a distraction. It becomes a, negative actually you know they end up blowing all their money they end up losing momentum they too many bad gigs and you you get discouraged so i can only speak from my perspective but yes it was the best part of it in the beginning you know because i could play to an empty room i remember one time i played in, in in your neck of the woods in maybe broomfield or one of those lafayette is there a lafayette out there or, yeah yeah somewhere some coffee shop that was outside of boulder and I remember it was, uh, I walked in, there was like two rooms. There was the room where you order your coffee and there was like a side room where the stage was. And no one was there except the barista. And I had played empty rooms where the, at least I had the barista in the room with me. And it was 8 p.m. or whatever. And I asked her, I said, should I go play? She said, sure. And there I was in the room alone. And I just, I just stopped at some point and I walked into to the barista and I just said, I can't do it. <laughs> you know. And she said, it's okay. And we waited and we chatted until a person came in and then went in that room. And then I said, I'm clocking in, you know, and then I went in and I played. And it's almost like that. If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. You know, I kind of felt like that tree for a second. Do I even exist? You know, and then and then, of course, this person sort of validated that. So anyway, I got I sidetracked to answer your question. For me, it was great. I love the touring. I still if do. The musician strikes the chord and nobody's there to listen. Does it exist? Nobody knows. I'm wondering where you're at now because you, you've toured for many years. And then of course, with COVID, it's the forced break situation. But well, it's not like, you know, okay, you're working a, a desk job and you're just in front of your computer all day. And then, okay, well, now I have to work from home now and I'm sort of doing the same thing. No, you're, you're like out having human interactions, touring, you know, doing all the things that you do as a musician. And then all of a sudden you're home you know, where are you kind of personally with all that right now? Because I know a lot of artists, they get tired of touring, you know, and then they start looking for different things that they can do with their music or, or you know, still be involved with music, but not have to tour so much or just choose not to. I'm just wondering how you feel about it. I know you got shows coming up and everything. I'm sure you're excited to get out there. But, you know, how do you feel about all that? You know, I feel very good. For me, what I'm trying to do with my music and my performance does require to a certain extent, this collective experience in the beginning, I was doing a few live streams and it really just was, I mean, and I know we could all complain about live streams and, and they're 
they're, you know, not as good as the real show. That's obviously not a question, but for me, especially it just, uh, I just felt, it just felt like it wasn't right at all. I needed to have that sort of conversation with the audience through song and story. And, um, yeah. So for me personally, the quarantine was a, a big existential crisis for me because I never, in all of my scenarios, doomsday scenarios, I never like considered the one where I couldn't be with people. You know, I would imagine like, oh, no worries. Like we have oil goes, I'll just ride horseback, you know, or some apocalypse. I'll dodge the zombie camps. I'll go to the human camps. I'll, I'll play the zombie camps too, as long as they don't eat me, you know. But I never thought of this time where I just couldn't be in a room with a bunch of people. I just didn't consider it. And so, yeah, I, it was really hard for me. So I have found my peace with being home, of course. I found my peace with with not having to do that all the time. But the kind of music I make uh, just works better, I think, with um, with the live performance. So, now, of course, if I, ne I was never allowed to again, you know, I would I would make my music in, a, in the way I do. But I have certain songs that I think are topical, humorous, sensitive to the last year. And um, I'm so excited. And I've gotten to, a, I was out at Cervantes in Denver two months ago and I got to sort of share these songs and it felt so good because again, it was that thing where we were all acknowledging each other that we'd all been through this together. So yeah, I think that's for me, but I can, I have friends who their music is a bit more universal and can be experienced and shared at home and they're going to chill out, you know, on touring. And I think that's awesome, you know? So it just depends. That first show must have been sweet back, just kind of doing your thing. Yeah, the existential crisis, I feel, is it can happen pretty easily if you've been traveling for years and all of a sudden you're just at home, just like, uh, okay, <laughs> I guess I'm doing this now. Well, also, your songs are based a lot on your experiences traveling. It, it, it's, I mean, I listened to a KEXP interview with you and you said, you like to write songs based on human experiences and weird interactions. And I think travel gives you a lot of opportunity for that. Um, is songwriting harder without travel? 100%. Yes. And in fact, the first three months, and I'm not like a machine. I write songs whenever they come. I wouldn't be the kind of person to tell you that I'm writing this many a month, but I went three months without writing anything. And that's weird for me, you know, and I knew exactly why I had no uh, inspiration. And as, monumental as you know impactful as those first three months were on the world i started to write stuff about being in quarantine or about you know just what we were all going through as a country but it i needed the that interaction it wasn't until i think it was actually june 1st or right around then i went to my first protest here in portland and for the george floyd stuff and right away it started happening again and um so I think, yes, for me, songwriting is very difficult without at least human interaction, you know, and because as we know, the touring is only one part of the touring is the show. There's so much else. There's the, um, there's so much more to it. You know, there's like, uh, there's the merch table, there's the after parties, there's the everything in between. There's just driving around and seeing billboards of a different, you know, seeing bumper stickers, uh, things like that, that I, that I wasn't getting. I was watching movies and I was, you know, trying to 
uh, tapped into anything modern, the news documentaries, but it was, it's difficult. So yeah, for me personally, um, it was incredibly challenging and it remains to be challenging. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot to, I mean, I used to work as a tour manager. There's a lot to do. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff going on on tour, but you know, those human interactions are, I mean, it's, it's huge, right? I mean, not just for your material, but for our souls, for us as humans. On the songwriting side, I mean, what does songwriting mean to you? What is your relationship with songwriting? Yeah, I think it's two things. And this kind of goes with what your previous question. It's an, it's an emotional release for sure. You know, it's, my, it's the best way that I can process my emotions and release them. Therapy is my, my main form of therapy. But part of that for me is uh, the sharing aspect. And so I think another hard thing that once we settled into quarantine and realized it was going to be longer than a few weeks, part of me sometimes will have a hard time uh, songwriting because I'll have this feeling that if I know I can't share it, you know what I mean? This is a very like shallow metaphor, but if I bought like a really cool outfit or something, great pair of bell bottoms. Maybe I wouldn't be as inspired to buy them if I knew that I was never going to be in front of anyone again. You know, I think as humans, it's okay. It's not shallow to, to, to say that a huge part of our experience comes from interacting with other humans and sharing and things like that. That was a big part of it. So that's, I think for me, in the beginning, when I was on the edge of my bed at 16 and writing songs, it was, I think, just going through this, these motions of, the, of my heroes. So being on the edge of my bed and being so excited that I just wrote a song because I felt like I was walking in the footsteps of, uh, at that time, Eddie Vedder or, uh, you know, um, Robert. I, I, I was a Pearl Jam fan, you know. Yeah. I was a- <laughs> exactly. And then, you yeah, discovering. Oh, I am. Yeah, me too. Discovering <laughs> someone like Bob Dylan, which made a little more sense, you know, I'd write a song that used the same chords as Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, you know, similar, some of those same chords. I thought, oh, man, I'm, I'm doing it. You know, I'm in. I'm in the factory. I'm I'm there. I'm working. But back then, I had no one to share with. Once I started sharing it, I found that other side to songwriting that was so beautiful. And so those are the two things it means to me. It's my own personal therapy. It's my collective therapy. And it's my job. You know, you mentioned the ego thing before and, and balancing the ego versus the I, I can't remember the words you used, but there, it's like a dual duality, right? There are a lot of these dualities in life. And I think you're touching on one right now in terms of songwriting because you have the personal fulfillment that you're getting from writing the song and the release and the emotional release and everything you just talked about, but then also knowing that you're going to go out and share it and balancing that that need for sort of like, hey, are people going to like this versus I really like this? And it, you know, screw those people, doesn't matter because I, I know it's going to be good and they'll learn to like it, damn it, or whatever, you know? I mean, is is that... Does that at all come into play when you're creating songs? Do you get what I'm asking? That's a great question. And I always was confused by that particular attitude that um, I think, especially in the, ni- in the late 90s when I was growing up and becoming a musician, was a very prevalent attitude of sort of the, like, I don't care if you like this record you know, suck it or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah. That's the, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now on one hand, I do think it's important for an artist to obviously follow their muse for sure. And to be ever evolving people like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, uh, Paul Simon, I admire, I wouldn't say more so than someone like John Prine, but I do think it's very cool. That's, you know, and again, John Prine, huge influence, one of my tops, 
but he stayed pretty consistent as far as like, you know, there is not, there's not like the John Prine jazz album, you know, or whatever. Probably because he didn't want that. I love someone like Neil or Joni who, and, and Neil said it, I think the best when he said, I always follow my muse, even if I know it's going to take me to a bad place or an unpopular place. But I think that comes with trusting your creative outlet that uh, really in the end, that's what the audience wants is they want you to, to sort of dig deep. And sometimes you'll hit, sometimes you'll miss. I do think that there's a little bit of that. If I make something that uh, I know no one's going to like, and I just print, you know, 4,000 vinyl, there's a bit of an arrogance there. I do think that sometimes you make something that you think is good. And yeah, I do think, uh, that that's important. I just don't know if you need to, um, again, it's that same, it comes back to that same thing of that balance of your ego to believe that it's good, but also to understand that no one may like it and that's okay. And so, um, you have to find that balance too. And I, I think hopefully you and your audience, your listeners have that. Um, it's just like any relationship. You want to have it where the things you like are the things they like. You don't want to find yourself caught in a rut where you have to do everything the way that they like. I feel like the nineties was a lot like that. Take a band like Goo Goo Dolls, for example, Goo Goo Dolls were mostly like sort of pop punk with a little bit of that acoustic, you know, uh, I won't tell me, nay, you know, breathy, like vocal. Then, then they put out a song like that. Everyone likes that from then on. It's all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, Sugar Ray, you know, I just want to fly. They were also kind of like more of a hard metal band. That song comes out. Everyone likes that. Next thing you know, Sugar Ray is just all like, every morning there's a, you know, like they, so now maybe they liked doing that. Who knows? But it's a very tricky thing. In the end, of course, you got to do what you got to do. I just think you have to also understand that sometimes people will like it. Sometimes they don't. And that is one thing I'll say about Joni Mitchell is that, who's another one of my tops, she did her folky thing. Clearly, that's what everyone liked. She did her jazz thing, which I love. But a lot of people didn't, and she got pissed, you know? <laughs> and it's like, if you can't get pissed, you have to be like, cool, I got to keep doing this because I don't want to do the folky thing anymore. Mad respect. And then you just play smaller rooms or whatever, you know? And so, but I do think there's just so much arrogance in the, in the artistic business. Once you reach a certain level, um, I think you kind of just want everyone to sort of blindly go with you. Now, sometimes you're a Paul Simon or a Pink Floyd where everyone loves every move you make. Um, and then sometimes you're not, and that's okay too. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I could ponder on that for hours. So I'll let you. Yeah, no, I love that. It's a, yeah. I just wondering how you get out of your own way when it comes to that, you know, cause I could easily be like, well, you know, I like this hook, but is this hook hooky enough, you know, or, you know, these types of small things that can come up when you're songwriting, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. I think you shouldn't, I don't think you should ever, in my opinion, write something just in terms of, I want this to sell or I want this to like succeed in a way because really in the end, all you have is your uniqueness. You know, that's all we can offer. So for, for someone to be like, I just want to make it sound like Katy Perry or Billie Eilish so I can rise to the top. In the end, you're just going to be looked at as that and you won't, and you won't rise probably, or you'll rise for fake reasons. I do think that um, you got to give them you and I think you can have some pretty good confidence that you're doing it well. I I have a hard time putting out the same record each time. I want it to be uh I want it to be something special, but 
I'm not that t- talented or diverse. So oftentimes I'm like, oh, this album's crazy different. And then it's just like, ooh, John had like a cool drummer on this record or whatever, you know. And uh, that's, I'm fine with that. But I find a lot of joy in uh, pushing myself because I think the audience finds that too, right? I mean, the Dark Side of the Moon exists. If you like Dark Side of the Moon, listen to that. You know, don't expect Pink Floyd to give you 10 Dark Sides of the Moon. You don't want that, you know? Right. And ultimately, they're coming to see you. Like you said, your uniqueness. That's well said. And I mean, authentic would be the word that's probably overused, but maybe that comes to mind, just being your authentic self. Um, Yeah, of course. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. You know, I know for some people, and of course the term, you know, you're giving birth to a song sounds sort of dramatic, but it is it is that way. And I think people say that because they don't feel like it's really theirs. They're just kind of the vessel for it. I'm just wondering if there is a spiritual element like that for you when it comes to songwriting. For sure. I mean, how could even one claim ownership of it? The only thing that I can feel the ownership of is the experience, you know? So if I have a song, which I would think that 90% of my songs are like this, that I'm telling you a story of what happened to me in this particular moment, then I feel at least that it's sort of a co-write between me and the universe. But <laughs> Right, right. That's but, a cool way to look at it. Yeah. <clears throat> but... Um, a lot of times, yeah, when you write something that's very cool and divine, and I have a few songs like this, which are sort of story songs or songs that are not about me, but uh, are sort of a tale that I want to tell. Yeah. How, how would one know where that comes from? I mean, that's a very, it's also a very existential question of, you know, our own brains and, you know, what's causing this nature versus nurture, all this stuff. But in all the good moments of, a, of an artist's life, you have to kind of close your eyes open that door to you could call it the muse and i would also just call it like sort of like that universal well that we're all pulling from which is a mixture of all of our 
the influences from our ancestors before. You know what I mean? So if you're Chris Christopherson or something, you know, you're looking at Johnny Cash and then you're looking at your well and a lot of that is in there from someone like Cash. And then if you're prying, you know, it, it goes down. Uh, so I think if I write a song, a lot of it is my influences. A lot of it is my own experience. And a lot of it is that magic that I think is undeniable, you know, for that an artist is lucky enough you got to find that channel your own way in. If you don't, I think it's pretty obvious. When I hear a song by someone who faked that channel, I think it's pretty obvious. Well, then you have the humor aspect, which is a very unique part of your writing and not not an easy thing <laughs> to to pull off, I think. And and I I'll use one specific example and dissect the bird. You know, the end of that song, you're just like and, and you guys listening, you got to go listen to it. You're, you're just like, wow, I feel amazing just to be alive. Hold on a second. Let me play a little bit of this song for you. This is Dissect the Bird from John's live album opening for Steinbeck. You. We went through a lot just to give you a chance and must have wanted you. Pretty bad. No pressure, though. No pressure, though. The universe went through a lot, but... No pressure, bro. You don't gotta be perfect. You don't gotta be a saint. Just don't waste it. This was not a mistake. Oh, you're doing it wrong. Dissecting the bird, trying to find the song. It's a miracle that you're here at all. But the beginning of the song, it's like, oh, let me check if my flies up. You know what I mean? Like, how does it, it goes from, it's like the ultimate extremes in some ways, right? It, was that intentional? Or like when you add humor to a song, do you, is that just kind of become a natural part of it as you're writing? You're like, oh, you know what? I think it, it's going to go a bit in this direction here, or or it's going to be like some kind of build. Like, how does that work for you? Is it an intentional choice? Yeah, I mean... It, it feels very natural to me. I'm surprised it's not more common. I think that so much of life's tragedies have so much comedy within them. I think probably subconsciously or consciously, I always want to put some... I don't want to ever just, just be funny. Uh, as a child, I remember as I was dreaming of becoming a musician, I saw Adam Sandler on SNL singing probably Hanukkah song or, uh, you know, one of his, one of his great lunch lady land or one. of sure. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly like Adam is a good musician, good voice, good choice of melody, clever and funny. But I remember thinking to myself that I wanted to hear like Adam's like serious stuff. And then I remember thinking like, Oh, maybe he doesn't have it or even worse. Maybe he does have it. And the world like won't let him, sing it because uh they don't want that you know what i mean like they and so it always scared me as i grew up and started writing funny songs i just said don't let yourself get to that point where you can't be real and so um i think to me yeah the most successful song of mine is one that uh can have both because that is the human experience and that's what's going to make people feel most seen but i also think that humor disarms people a bit lowers their guard and allows them to get hit 
with a, with a deeper message. Um, laughing and crying are very similar uh, release of emotions. Maybe concept album with Adam Sandler basement tapes. You could, you know what I mean? Just uh, <laughs> the unhidden, uh, the unreleased stuff. Just that had a couple more questions for, if you don't mind. Maybe these are sort of bigger overarching questions that relate to your experience, but also maybe looking for some just perspectives or, or advice or tips or anything uh, for some people listening. Finding your calling or your purpose mm. and then staying true to that, you know, because there are a lot of temptations, I think, external pressures from society saying, well, you know, that's great and all that's cute. You want to do that, but, you know, you should get a regular job and those types of things, you know. Yeah, that is a hard question. I mean, it's very, it's very uh, scary. It's very, especially in our society with things like the arts, for some reason, one of the, my biggest frustrations in our culture is, yeah, if you go to become a doctor or lawyer or accountant and you fail, society's kind of easy on you, you know, like, oh, shoot, well, keep trying, you know, you'll be fine, you know. With music, and, and nothing is more exemplary of this than like an American Idol, we all laugh at the one who can't sing thing, which is, I really hate that. Um, if you go for the artist's life and you fail, I feel like society's a bit harsh on you. Like we told you so, or who did you think you were? And I don't know what that is. I don't, I, I struggle with trying to figure out why we are like that. I think potentially because that is a thing that we all dream of. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing and so there's a little bit of a jealousy maybe. And when someone fails, it's just, it just sort of reassures the rest of society that, oh yeah, that is a really hard thing to do. Now, I do believe some people just really want to just hang out and have a family and stay home and that's fine. Uh, but if it's in you, uh, part of it is trusting yourself. And, and again, like I said before, that ego balance of finding your confidence while also finding your sense of realism. Um, it's very challenging. And I don't know, people will ask me that a lot, you know, uh, that have been struggling a long time with it. And I struggled a long time. So I always just tell them, keep going. But at some point, I think some people don't want to anymore. And that's okay, too. I mean, we're all going to die. We're all going to, the sun is going to expand and melt down earth. You got to just feel good while you're here and feel like you're doing good things. And, um, and so, but I think we all know some sense of purpose within us. And um, if we really dig deep, we can see the impact we make on this world. And what, after a while, you start to sort of feel like what, what the world wants from you and what, what you can give them. And I think we all have a lot of good to give. Defining success, I feel like that is an important part of life. It's a good thing to do, I feel. Uh, you know, and you thinking about music specifically, I mean... You know, all kinds of images pop into your head, right? Of like, what does it mean to be a be a success in music? Like, when have you made it? You know, I feel like it very much is, of course, about the journey. But you can get in. We all get into our own heads and the comparison trap and things like that. I remember listening to your interview with Andy Frasco, and I I thought this was your definition of success, which I thought was really cool. Was hearing your song played at a campfire? Was that <laughs> your definition of because well, I thought like. That makes total sense. Like, I can get my head around that. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a huge question. And I've, all, I've wanted to like 
have an entire podcast just about this because I think that is one of the major hurdles, not of becoming an artist, but maintaining your artistic life is definitions of success, comparison to other people. Um, because there is no definition of success. You know, it is not only is it something you have to decide for yourself, but also even within that, that can be messy. You know what I mean? Because what happens a lot is people will say they'll set a big goal, maybe, maybe to play Red Rocks or whatever, you know, but if anyone's listening, I'm going to play Red Rocks in a few weeks and then I'm going to go back to work. You know, like it's not going to, it's going to be a great experience. It's going to be fun. It's not going to satisfy me, you know, or, or, or finish my career. It will mean, it means nothing other than put, you know, going to work at a really cool place for the day. But I think people get caught up with that because again, it's a hard job. It's a hard thing to go for. And we want societal validation. You know what I mean? Other jobs, it's easy. I, I got hired, you know, I have somebody, I joke about that with like parents trying to see if their artistic children are doing well, you know? And because the, the joke I make is that if I'm, if I'm uh, an accountant, you know, I got a boss, I could be fired if I'm bad. With a musician, you can't be fired if you suck. You know what I mean? You just keep going. And so you kind of have the parents looking at you like, are you good? Like, <laughs> are you even like, would somebody fire you if they could? It's hard. So the joke I make now for myself, uh, I, that's what I wanted as a kid. I just wanted to create music that was universal enough that someone could play it at a campfire and people could sing along and not care who wrote it, you know, and like, like something like, will the circle be unbroken or, uh, you know, um, this land is your land, uh, you know, country roads, even though those, those have writers, most people don't care. It's about the song. Um, the definition of success I give to these younger people is I say, if you can just do your art without having to have another job, then you have made it in the sense of uh, you are a working artist and you're doing something good. And that's really all that really matters. The rest of the stuff uh, is arbitrary. You know, whether you play Red Rocks or uh, a coffee shop that holds 20 people, you know, what really matters is if it's the show's good. We all know this, that if a coffee shop is sold out at 20 and if Red Rocks has 400 people in it, the coffee shop's going to feel better. You know what I mean? It's going to be a better show <laughs> for everyone. So you have to look at those terms of success of, are you killing it when you kill it? You know, when you do your thing. Um, but like I said, this is a much, it's a huge question. And I think it is, it's, it's the, it's the sort of existential crisis that will happen to every artist continuously, because I'm sure that you too Bono or something is like, he's, there's something he hasn't done yet that he's pissed off. You know, he never did this or, or Ed Sheeran or something like that, you know, which is good. I don't think a musician should, or an artist should ever be satisfied. Uh, I think that's a dangerous place to be. Music should be like food, you know, no matter how amazing of a meal I eat tonight, there's no meal that's good enough or big enough that is not going to make me hungry tomorrow, you know? Um, Music should be the same way. We should always be hungry. Uh, otherwise, what's the point? You know what I mean? And maybe that's the trick too, like you mentioned, being satisfied and, and but then still striving. And it's always finding that balance. I think particularly in, you know, Western culture, right? It's like, it's like the more, more, more thing. But at what point do you just kind of be there and just like, okay, you know, like this is the life. This is happening. I'm doing it right now. So let's just 
kind of enjoy it <laughs> and chill yeah. out. You know, it's, it's not back. it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, which brings us back to the Van Gogh thing. Who knows what Van Gogh's uh, dream of success was? But who knows what Van Gogh's dream of making it was? All that matters is that he kept painting. You know, and that's I think something that I always that always stuck with me. No matter where I was, I said this isn't about me. This is about this is about the creation and and wherever it will end up. And many times with with our art. We have no idea what it's doing out there. We don't know how many lives it's saving. We don't know how many days it's making. We don't know how many relationships it's it's like burgeoning. It doesn't matter in the end, you know. Of course, it matters to them, but to me, that's not my job. Is to create it and to uh, do it well. Yeah, it's nice to think about sometimes, though, right? Like, what what are some of the things that have come out of that? It's just so many factors. It's hard to know. Yeah, I guess just focusing on the things that you can control, right? And a lot of that sounds like, I think the mindset's huge too, right? Just to, just to kind of keep positive, not like, Oh, I'm I'm just going to be positive all the time. But I mean like all the stuff we've talked about today, right? And I feel like we've covered a ton of ground here. So we're going to let you get out of here in a minute. I had a a, one or two last quick hit questions. What what is your favorite John Craigie song right now? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I don't really ever have favorites because uh, it feels weird, but I usually say an artist's favorite song is the newest song. You know, I do have a song that that is I've currently written. That's very, I'm very proud of the way that I sort of summed up maybe an individual's experience of the, uh, of the quarantine in a sort of sassy and fun way. I'll be playing that a bunch these next few months, of course. But I think that that's true. I try not to, have favorites. I think there's just, they're all your children, you know, for sure. Yeah. I've asked your manager to send me some tunes so we could put them on the podcast. So hopefully we can, because I want to, I want to finish up with Nomads, which is my favorite right now. And it's totally appropriate for this show. I love that song. If you want to check out John's music, of course, just search wherever you get music streamed, or you can go to johncraigiemusic.com. We'll leave the links in the show notes and all that. And got the Red Rock show coming up with uh, Andy who's been on the podcast as well. You know, I- I'll leave a little breadcrumb for everybody listening here. I-, I think you're a true original, John. And I uh, I know that sounds cliche, but I think those cliches can be overcome when, you- when you're truly meaning them. And I do mean that. I hope you never stop making non-hula hoop music. You Thanks, know what I'm saying? <laughs> so people will have to check out your live mu- uh, album to hear that story. Thank you so much for your time today. And Get over to Oslo. Get over to Europe so we can catch a show here. Thanks. (laughs) All right, bud. Take care. There you have it. I want to say once again, thank you to John Craigie for stopping by. (laughs) It certainly made my day, made my year to chat with him and uh, feel so lucky and honored to be able to share that with you. You know, this is a community-powered show. You know that. And I always invite you to get in touch. Please. Reach out if you want to give me some feedback on this show, recommend some guests, just want to say hi, share your story, let me know what's up, send a picture of yourself out there listening to the podcast somewhere in the world, whatever. I love to get all the above and more. You can reach out to me via email, jason at zero to travel.com, or there is a link in the show notes if you want to just leave me a quick 90-second message. You literally just click a button and you can leave me a voice message and maybe we'll even put it on the podcast. Who knows? So I love to hear from you all out there. I want to thank you to everybody that has gotten in touch. I have been a little under the weather lately, so I apologize if if you've reached out and I haven't gotten back to you. 
I had a, a bit of a spell of vertigo. And uh, anyway, I think I'm coming out the other end, which is great. And now the sun is shining, summer's here, and it's all good. It's all good. So I hope you are doing well wherever you are. Now, as promised, I uh, do want to leave you with my favorite Craigie song right now. And of course, I mean, it's this could be the theme song for this show in many ways uh, because the song's called Nomads. It's just a beautiful song. And, you know, when you're listening to it, think about this. I feel like this is an overlooked part of uh, talking about albums and, and tracks and music where it was recorded. I think the physical space that uh, music was recorded, of course, influences the the music in some way. It has to, right? Maybe in some cases it's a bigger influence than in others, uh, but it, it all ties together, right? Who you're around, where things are happening, that space you in- inhabit, the mental space you're inhabiting when you record. And what was cool about John's album is that it was recorded in an old cabin built on a few acres out in Northern California. So it says on his website that, uh, quote, the album is strongly influenced by California and California musicians. My roots are always coastal California. It was great to be so close to the ocean when recording and surrounded by local talent. So keep that in mind. As you listen to this track, you might just feel a little bit of a California here. So I'll leave you with Nomads by John Craigie. Thanks again for your time and I'll see you next time. Peace and love. We clawed through brambles and we swam through mud Climbed over fences and kicked up some dust Waded through trash, waded through the weeds Wild dogs nipping at our feet Slept in ditches and we slept in the fall Slept in your beds while you were gone Watched our lives get scattered and torn Hit underground
songs and I just made them join Ate all the drugs that we were able to eat Saw the infinite and made our Children from now on. Oh. 